0: We're into Titus now. Let's uh, let's get into that book. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 5 through 9 of Titus. Last week was our start to this book, and actually it's probably better said a letter, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the young protege Titus in this area of Crete and uh, there is one objective from Paul's vantage point. Let me show it to you in verse five. This is what Titus now has been called to do. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. In other words, Paul says, all right, Titus, finish what we started. We've got some, we've got some work to do, um, All right, for us to get our minds around what the unfinished business is that Titus has been asked to do, let me just remind you of a couple things we mentioned last week about the environment, the culture, the climate of of Crete. Um, These are the circumstances in this community, this place where, where Titus is left to work. There are some converted Jews, and there's a lot of converted Gentiles, and all of them from a pagan culture. That's the environment. Remember the quote that uh, Paul used to describe the climate of Crete in verse 12? Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That makes a great bumper sticker. That's, that's where he's going. That's where you're supposed to now uh, finish the business. It's a godless place if you think of it that way where the rule of order is your flesh. Do what you want to do. Make yourself happy. It doesn't really matter about anybody else. Follow your stomach, that kind of kind of thing. In fact, Tim Chester, I, he, I read a quote from him um, that described it as a very corrupt political environment, racist, crime-ridden, lazy, selfish, and harsh. And the reason why everybody in church should sit up and listen to this, because he has just described our world. That's why this is important to us. It couldn't get more practical than this. And there's no more letter more suited to practical help than this letter from Paul to Titus. Okay, in verses one through four, we looked last week. Um, Paul says, because of this great gospel that you have received, he basically says, live in light of that. Look at verse one again, and we'll just wipe our rhymes around this theme again. Paul is servant of God and a an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this is a theme for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. That is the, that is the direction that uh, Titus has now been called to participate in. And everything else that he tells us after that declaration is how to do it. This is specifically how to get busy in in defending those, those truths and those realities, okay? So here's the text, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. Let me just read it, and then we'll see... Um, what the Lord says. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And and an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard, or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Last week, um, just to remind us, uh, we looked at Paul's introductory thoughts and they were an amazing reminder of what our salvation is. Like if you were just doing a flyover of four verses, he just buries us in this amazing gospel. That this salvation is of God by his choice. And it comes through his people responding to the knowledge of the truth. This truth that Jesus died in our place and rose again to give us life. That is where this gospel salvation story started. It is a hope that brings um, a change in life. It is a uh, salvation by grace through faith only. It is a salvation, from Paul's vantage point, that makes bondservants, slaves of God, that produces godliness in his people. Now, that's a a huge paragraph, right, to write what salvation is. Now, there was one other thing that I'm going to use to make a point here in these next five verses, and that is uh, that salvation comes through preaching. Um, We said it this way, that God in his sovereignty has decided that he is going to save his children. He ordained salvation for his people, but he's also decided the means in which his people would come to that salvation. He was going to use this thing called people-to-people preaching. Like someone had to hear about sin and a savior to respond, and that's how God decided not only that he would be sovereign, that they would be saved, but how they would be saved, by the hearing of the word. That's what Paul tells Titus here. I want you to keep that in mind as we go into this next section because God in his wisdom has not only decided to save his people through the means of his people sharing the faith that they have in Jesus. He's also decided this, that the way his people are going to grow up and mature in the faith is through this thing called discipleship. Like you would think if God could, he probably could, he could just kind of throw pixie dust on his believers and we're all fully mature. But that's not how he's decided this is going to work. We, over time, one another to one another, will shape each other in the image of Jesus. It's called discipleship. And that's the reality. That's the sovereignty of God in our growth. And that is the unfinished business that Paul is referring to in verse 5. They're converted, Titus, but they're so immature. They're converted, Titus, but they don't know much about God or the things of his kingdom. So, Titus, go and make disciples. Go and make much of them, all right? And this is the job that Titus has been commissioned to. And what Paul tells Titus is that the, disciples, uh, uh, the discipleship of these churches, these young believers, starts with this idea of other leaders or elders, as he describes it here. That's how we're going to do this. We're going to start with other examples. Now, before we get into the discussion specifically of elders and the qualities of an elder and the qualifications, I want to make a point, and i just stick it in the sand. You understand that discipleship isn't an exclusive job for elders, right? Shake your head. It isn't an elder-only job. There isn't a department of discipleship where if you want to grow up in Jesus, you go see the professionals, okay? Discipleship is what God has called all his children to. Go and make disciples, Matthew 28, the departing words of our Savior, right? Right? We play a role in each other. We are to shape Jesus in each other. Make little Jesuses is the, the point of our work here on this earth, waiting for Christ to return, all right? We play this role of spiritual growth in each other. Hebrews 10, the writer said it this way. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds. Well, that is a great depiction. I don't know of a better one of what it is that we do with each other. I want to stir on faith and stir on good deeds. I want you to be disciple. And we do that. So every believer in here, look at me for a second. You have an obligation to answer this question. Who are you following and who is following you? That is a role that we play. Who is, who is shaping you and shaping your mind and your doctrine and your theology and your life? And who are you giving it away? And I understand this. Most of us think about discipleship and we say, well, time out. It's not me. I don't know much. All I, all I know is this about discipleship. You just have to be one one step ahead of the next person. You don't have to be a hundred steps ahead. Take them where you are and answer that question. Who who is following you? Just to put that burden on all of us, all right? But here in Titus 1, what Paul clearly states, what is unfinished in this church was the establishment of elders, leaders, that could lead the church and what it meant to disciple others. That's where he... uh, makes his definitive comments and here's how it's clearly about example so let me give you the three point outline to this passage you lead in discipling the church by your example of your relationships at home your conduct in your life and your convictions with the truth that's how leaders disciple other people how i live at home how i live in my life and the truth that i hold on to so let's let's get into this now Paul clearly offers a list of things that are to be present in a leader's life. But there's a phrase here that haunts me. Maybe it does you. I don't know. I hope you have some sympathy here. In verses 6 and 7, this is the phrase. It is the overarching standard for God's leaders. And it is this phrase, above reproach. Now, I've been in... uh, for a length of time, three churches in my life really as a believer. My father's church for a while, the church I was at for 13 years before I came here, and here for 18 years of my believing life. So that's 32 years, all right? Um, No, I take that back. It's 34 years now. Every elder I've ever met swallows hard at the phrase above reproach. There is this extra, uh uh-oh, pounding in the heart. Because we know us You know us, because the words sound like, oh, my goodness, that's up there. So so let me me define it, but let me start by telling you what it isn't, okay? Above reproach is not sinless. Smile at me, please, church. Okay, here's what it means. If it meant sinless, there would be no elders. There is not a man out there other than Jesus who could fit that description of above reproach, all right? But obviously, Paul has in mind here some measure of godliness, some standard. And here's the technical meaning of above reproach. It means not chargeable with some offense. So Paul's standard is based on something pretty simple. What can the church observe in the men who lead the church? In other words, is there something inconsistent with their confession? Does their life and their confession not match up? I love Jesus, and he's my king. And someone will look and say, not really, You do this and you do that. So it's just above reproach in the sense that not seeable inconsistencies. But with that being said, it does not, just to repeat, does not mean that the elders are without sin. doesn't mean that we have arrived and we are fully baked and we don't need to grow. It doesn't mean that elders don't wake up and confess their sins or uh, work on their failures just like you. That, that person, or whoever that might be, I've never met. The reality of this cir- circumstance is that men who are still unfinished have to get someplace where they can't be accused of doing wrong while they wrestle with their own heart and sin. You understand that? Okay. Now, before we get into the specifics of these, this list of things that Paul lays down for Titus, I, I just want to remind you of the circumstance in Crete, and it's going to really help you understand this aspect of above re- reproach. Now, remember in Crete, we've got believers, but they've been boiled in a pagan culture. They have taken on, they have marinated in this world, and they are what they are, but they've been saved. So they have an understanding of Jesus and sin enough to leave that and pursue Christ. But they have habits. They have uh, inclinations. They've got culture that has done more shaping of them than any Jesus has done yet. And Paul tells Titus to go make leaders there with those guys. So just a picture how this would start out. Titus would show up in some city and say, all right, who's the sharpest of the sharp? Whoever they are. Well, out of the scale to one to five, if there is such a scale, maybe he's starting with twos. Who knows? Now, clearly, you know this in your own life in discipleship. You aren't what you were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Well, that's the faithful work of God. These men started somewhere as leaders there in this church. And that's the process that he's going through. Um, so just keep that in mind. It sounds like when you read this above reproach that somewhere in Crete were these studs just waiting around to do good work. Well, that isn't true. It's never been true in any environment. So just keep that in mind. There's another thing to notice specifically about this this kind of environment is that Paul tells Titus to establish multiple men or plural men in leadership. Verse 5, he uses that word elders. It's the plural form. He talks about husband of one wife and obviously he must not be, he must not be, he must be. This is clearly in Paul's mind, this multiple male leadership, which reminds us how God works through many voices and many strengths and many roles in his church. Now, I don't think I have to tell you this, but in our world, in our church world, this is becoming decreasingly um, obvious. Most in the world want to make much of one person. There's a leader, and he, all the buck stops with him, all the decisions stop with him, all the influence comes from him. I don't think that lines up at all with this, what the scriptures say about leadership. Leadership in Paul's mind was many men who are leading the church, many men who are watching over the health and the welfare of the church, plural leadership. So with those basic truths in mind, many many men leading the church who have lives that can't be accused, that kind of environment, that's that's the envelope that we're in. Now, Paul gives Titus specific categories that they have to excel in to be elders, and those are the three that I mentioned. Relationships at home, conduct in life, and conviction of truth. Let me start with relationships in the home. Verse 6 If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that elders have to be married. Paul wasn't married, most people would say that Titus wasn't married at this point either. This is not him implying some kind of assumed imperative here. All he's thinking is that there is a high inclination, possibility that most of these men who would be called up to lead are going to be married, so let's talk about this particular aspect. The word really means, or that phrase really means, one woman, man. And what Paul has in mind here is just this faithfulness, like commitment Like loyalty, that's what he has in mind. And the reason why he uses the family and commitment and loyalty and faithfulness to describe the quality of a leader, he's simply applying it to the church. If a man is to be committed to Christ's bride, then he better be committed at other things. Let's start at home. So that's how he looks at it. Look at the second thing he mentions in relationships in verse 6. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, let me answer a couple questions because I had to deal with this many years ago when my kids were born. How do I know? What's going to happen here? If if my leadership is dependent upon what my kid does or how people think about how my kid does, does this work? Does this look right? Um, Well, let me tell you what I think Paul has in mind here. Paul, in other texts, has told us clearly what he expects of fathers in the home. Ephesians 6. We know this, right? We are to um, raise uh, them in discipline and the instruction of the Lord, right? That's the role of a father. I don't know if you knew that, gentlemen, but your role as a dad isn't to provide college. It isn't to provide money. It is to raise them to know and follow the Lord. You have a job, a spiritual job, primary job in your life. That's what Paul knows about the role of a father, okay? Okay. So this is how he thinks. Um, this standard of leadership is fairly easy to follow. If a man can't or if a man won't own up to the responsibility for the spiritual welfare of his kids, then he is not going to step up for the spiritual welfare, welfare of God's church. That's, he's just not going to do it. If he's disinterested here at the most important place in his life, then he will not care for it there. All right? That's his logic. Now, there's another question that presents itself, and is that phrase, uh, believing children. Um, so you might think this way. If a man's kids either don't love Jesus, or they grow up and they leave Jesus, or they go off and do something stupid, does that mean an elder is disqualified? Well, if we understand the words that Paul uses in this in this sentence, it'll help us understand, I think, what he's getting at. Let, let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, the first uh word I want you to notice is the word for children that Paul uses. It's the word always used for small children under the authority of a father in a home, okay? So, in his mind, he's not thinking 35-year-old knucklehead who ends up ruining your life. He's saying, in your home, these small kids who need to be and are under your authority, that's what we're talking about. So, that's the first word. The second thing you need to understand is the word that he uses for children is a plural word. It's multiple kids. So, he is not implying... That you look at the life and the attitude and the beliefs of one child. He's saying, look at your family and the behaviors as a whole. Is it in whole going the right direction? Is it got the right demeanor? And then the third thing, the word that uh, he puts here for believers is better rendered faithful. Not believing like convictions, but faithful to the father is what Paul has in mind. So the point is not the confession of a child, but the discipline. Of a child, and if you're doing the math, this should be pretty easy to make sense of. And why it matters to Paul that elders have that in their home. Elders have a God-given responsibility to promote godliness in the church, and if he can't get it done at home, right? That's that's all he's doing. Like it's a test too. It's a smaller thing. It's not as grand or as important in the kingdom of God, but it needs to be demonstrated there. Now. This probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is not a description of a home without problems, okay? This is very simple. This is simply an average, ordinary home that has a man of such character that he will deal with the problems. Does that make sense? Some guys just lay down. Environments and situations and people control them. The kind of leader that God says must lead the church is the kind of guy that will deal with problems. Doesn't mean things will be any different than your home in the sense of how everyone, you know, gets along. But he's, he's passionate about dealing with his responsibilities. That's what Paul says here. Okay. The home is the first place, Paul mentions, that elders must excel. Here's the second place, the conduct of their lives, seven and eight. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a dr- or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's two lists here, the negative list and the positive list, five negatives and six positives. Let me just blast through this so that we can see kind of the big enveloped picture here, but arrogant, Um, just another word that means pleasing yourself. It means you make it about you. A leader can't make it about him. A leader can't have everything be focused on him or his desires or his wants. Quick-tempered is the kind of uh, life that flares up at other things and situations. Paul says that shouldn't be in a leader's life. A drunkard, it clearly means too much wine, but it also means someone who can't control themselves, right? Like a person who was drinking. That's what he has in mind there. Violent means striker. Not just like fists, but words too. It's the kind of person that likes to wound. Um, greedy for gain. It's a person who takes advantage of people or situations to make profit. And so Paul simply says, here's what a leader can't be. Now my assumptions that Paul writes this to the church in Crete because this was a fairly common way of life. It's like when he writes to fathers, don't exasperate your children. Why would he bring up out of all things to tell his fa- fathers to do? Because that's our inclination. Right? Why does he tell children to obey their parents? Why? Because the inclination is to not to. Why does he instruct men not to be this thing? Because Crete was this, self-centered, selfish, and violent, and greedy, and And he says, don't be like where you're from, okay? Now the positive list, positive traits, hospitable, opening your home and your heart to other people, lover of good, that's just the idea of loving virtue and the things that promote good in other people. Self controlled. It is the person who controls his flesh drives that would possibly lead to a damaging behavior. Upright. That's a person who lives in accordance with God's law. Holy, man, that word scares me, scares me like crazy, but it means devout. It probably means better passion, passion for the things of the Lord, like you're driven for it. Discipline is kind of like when you would describe an athlete, the practices an athlete puts in place in order to achieve. This is a person who, who has the ability to shape his life to say no to sin and ungodliness. Make sense? So those are the positive qualities of an elder. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that list intimidate anybody? It does me. Um, I do this in my study. I will, I'm will. a sprinter, so I, I don't marathon well, but the job requires it, okay? So I'll sit at my desk at ungodly hours and I'll read and I'll study. And as soon as the staff starts coming in, I'll have like three or four thoughts in my head. Like, I'm not certain. Should I go here? What should I think about this? Does this illustration work? And I'll just start walking and talking. So most of the men get nothing done on Thursday because of me. And I walk through and I talk. And and so I was lamenting maybe or sharing my weight. Like, I'd rather not preach this. I'd rather not do this passage um, because I know me. And it was difficult. And I tried to describe to the guys kind of how I felt about this. Like instinctively, without studying it much. Just my emotional reaction to it. And so I described, maybe this illustration will work. I described this, this guy, whoever this guy is, like a personality type. Like this man has the shape of a smooth stone. Like the edges have been rounded off, right? Like you look at him and, and it, it's... It's good, and people would notice it, and people would prefer that personality. My brother, I grew up in a home of six kids, three brothers, two sisters. I have a brother who is this man, always was this man. At six years old, he was this man, right? He was always this way. He was always gracious. He was a peacemaker. He was my mom's favorite. He was, (laughs) and I'm not bitter. I am not this man. I, I was born with edges. I was born square. In, in all the in all the good ways, possibly in all the bad ways. I, I've told you before, trying to be transparent um, about my inclinations from time to time. And if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, I would be a fighter. I'm more intense than most people can stand. Um, I like to fight, like not like physically, I'm just an arguer, you know, I'm just edgy. And early on, I never thought about it much, but I've been praying like crazy and years have gone by now and I think some edges are coming off, but I don't ever think I'm going to be my brother. I will never be my mother's favorite. Do you understand? And I don't think I'll ever be everyone's perfect experience. Like, oh, he is so easy to talk to. I don't hear that, okay? Um, I don't like it, but I don't hear that. But here's what I'm trying to say. This description, listen, is not the description of a personality. It's not. It's the description of the fruit of the Spirit that over time God develops in all people. Do you understand? That's why if you're here and you go, amen to the edges, man, i am got the edges. I'm the intense one too. And maybe you relate to me and you kind of hear this. I want you to hear exactly how I think the Holy Spirit is saying it. God over time shapes his people. If there's any hope that an edge goes away, it's because of Jesus shaping it, right? And so there are leaders who start awkwardly and a lot of skin knees and, and yet they're what God wants. And over time, faithfully, God producing the fruit of the Spirit in these men, they're gonna look more around than you ever dreamed. Okay? That's the first thing. The other thing I want to make certain you understand, you cannot look at this passage as if it applies to somebody else. I know we do. Man, I'm glad that isn't me. I'm so glad they're talking about them today. I don't have to respond. That's not the point. Get get the math that Paul puts on Titus. Titus, make leaders. Leaders who disciple people. People will look like they're leaders. you understand what God's doing with this passage? He wants this in your life. Hear the ring? God agrees, okay? (laughs) This isn't an elder list, it's a list for the church. We are all to aspire to these things. You can't look at the negatives and positives and go, man, I'm glad I don't have that burden on me. Yes, you do. We all have this burden. God was shaping us into the image of Jesus. That's the image of Jesus. Now, elders have a particular role to play in discipling that. Despite of the fact that he's doing it in all of us, he requires this of, of elders. And here's why, very simply. Because this example demonstrates to everyone that the power of God is real. Do you understand? When we talk about the gospel that he can change your life, what if no one ever acted changed? What what if you came in crippled and scarred from your life and your decisions and we said, hey, come to Jesus and, and he'll shape you in a different way and you'll find joy and peace and you never saw joy and peace in anybody? You never saw freedom from anything? You should say, well, this is just a bunch of malarkey. They talk a game they don't play. This is why this is here, so that you can believe when you meet another leader, whether it's a small group leader, or whether it's a home group leader, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, whether it's an elder, whether it's someone else that, that is kind of working their way through faith, you should look at them and see power of God, not in perfection, but in transformation over time. Make sense? That's what he's doing with this. So... When we live our lives this way, we are not, by the way, elders are not saying that there's some special favor on us, that God has given us some special dispensation of grace, and he dropped that pixie dust on a couple of guys, and we're the only guys that can do this job. That is not at all what this text is all about. We're hopefully just demonstrating that there is a power, and the power is greater that's in us through Christ than he that is in the world. That's what we're hoping this demonstrates, so that when we preach the counsel of God, you go, it matches, it matches. Not in perfection, but it matches. And you need to know this, that your God is with and for you too. And everything that he, he provides for a leader, he provides for his sheep, all sheep. Make sense? Okay, back to the list. Um, elders must excel in relationships at home and conduct in in life. And the last one, conviction of the truth. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The words hold firm. It could be better rendered death grip. Everybody get that picture? My life depends on it grip. I, uh, when I was younger, we used to go to this place in northern Wisconsin called Devil's Lake. Anybody ever heard of Devil's Lake? Eight o'clock did. Um, <laughs> Devil's Lake is like this pit in the ground it's a lake with cliffs all around it. And I would take students up there, and we'd go climbing. I got separated one day, and I got down on a cliff, and I got stuck. And there was 70 feet under me and no way to go forward. So I'm there, like straddling a rock, okay, making conscious decisions on which body part I'm going to sacrifice when I jump. Like, is it the legs? Is it the back? Where am I going to go? And I'm serious. I stuck there for an hour. Death grip until somebody rescued me. That picture is what Paul tells Titus the leaders of the church need to do with doctrine and truth. So, let me just make this really clear. If Paul has just given the list um, to the elders about letting their lives show the power of God, here he's telling us very clearly that their lips should share and defend the hope of the gospel there is one message we've got. We don't have any other message. It is that Jesus saves. This message, and in fact, the words that Paul uses here trustworthy word and sound doctrine I put them together. Every trustworthy word is sound doctrine. There is nothing different. They're together, sound doctrine. And this is what we say God loves us not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness. God cares for us and saves us, not because of our work, but because of Jesus' work for us. Isn't that what we say? Our hope, our joy, our salvation, God's satisfaction in us has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the finished work of Jesus for us. That's what you hear, I hope, every message. I I don't really care if you're bored at this point, because every, every message we deliver has to have, in the beginning, in the middle, at the end, the gospel. Because if we don't teach the gospel that you are free in Jesus through his grace and work alone, then we'll go off and be moral people and go to hell. If you don't trust in Christ alone. So we're passionate about defending this doctrine, all right? And as elders, I'm confessing out loud, we will defend it and we'll refute anybody who suggests there's another way. And the world is full of other ways, even in the church man centered ways. Like this whole thing is up between you and God, this man-God cooperation. Like if you do hold up your end of the bargain, he'll agree and meet you halfway, and then you have this combination of salvation. I don't believe that. I believe that my problem, my sickness, my sin was so devastating, the Bible calls me dead, and if Jesus doesn't do it all, I'm hopeless. That's the gospel. There isn't any good news unless it's accurate. So you're going to hear us defend it and preach it all the time. That's our commitment. And Paul tells Titus, stick to it, okay? Now... I don't have any time, but i got to do this. Um, let me tell you about motive. And I couldn't even say this at 8 o'clock, but so let me tell you again. Sometimes we think leaders, and, and they're so distant from us. But let me tell you our motive. Our motive is that we love you. We don't have any other reason to defend these things and teach these things and try to live this way and confess our sin and keep short accounts, all that kind of stuff. One reason, because we care. I care when you're happy. I care when you're sad and I'm speaking for all the elders, it's, it's, it's not an overdue burden, but it's a burden to care at that level. And I don't know how else to do it. Um, so just so you know, your leaders, these men, really do love you, really do love you. And I don't get a chance to talk about them much, or you don't get a chance to see them. So I had a picture made. I want you to know these men. And most of you, some of you do, um, but I think it's an amazing tale of what God has done at our church. Uh, Bruce Barkley, I think, has been here 18 years. He has, in those, you know, two decades of work, has served in almost every capacity from children's ministry, student ministry, 710. Uh, he has done marriage classes, and now he does prep for marriage. Him and his wife, Trace have, have been awesome everywhere. They've gone 18 years, two grown kids. Chuck Bishop, Chuck Bishop has been around for, I think, 24 years. I think that's uh, the statement. Him and his wife, Kathy, have served in every place possible. Kathy has a great counseling ministry, and Chuck has faithfully served in discipling people, men and women in in the community groups. You see the picture of of Dave Cromwell. Dave has been here 25 years. Uh, You should be doing the math by this point. Dave has served in children's ministry and worship ministry, and now has led a small group for 11 years, over a decade, discipling people, um, as well as serving as your elder. Um, Jerry, Smith, and Joey, they have been here from the very beginning, 25 years. Uh, you remember last week when I described you Titus, that uh, Paul was kind of calling Titus to be the toughest guy in the toughest situation, drop him in like special ops? That's Jerry. Um, Jerry goes and does the hard things, um, He's the one who will get on a plane and go to another place in the world that I don't know how to spell and care for people I'll never meet. He has cared for missions. He's cared for counseling. The dip, most difficult cases, he's he's kind of got underneath it and prayed it up. And um, obviously, he's been invaluable. Neil Pitcher, I don't have to introduce him much to you, but Neil is the hardest working man I've ever met in my life. Um, Neil oversees central operations for all of Redemption Church. Ten congregations. So everything that has to do with finances and rent and mortgages and personnel and insurances and payroll and, and all the things that are a part of making churches operate on a business standpoint. And he counsels constantly. And he's the best senior adult ministry uh, leader I've ever seen in my life. So uh, Neil is an invaluable part of our staff. Now, I tallied up all the years of, it, of being a part of this local assembly of our elders, and it's 125 years. That doesn't happen very many places. There's not a lot of turnover, and here's why. Because they love you, they really do and they pray for you, and they watch the doctrine carefully, and they kind of decide where we go in a vision standpoint. Uh, this is a really good thing. It's a really healthy thing. So I thought if we were going to talk about the role of elders, that you'd see these faces and put faces to this, and we would do this as we finish. We'd pray for these men, that God would protect them, and God would continue to use them and bless them in this very, very difficult task of, of caring for your hearts. Can we do that? God, I thank you for uh, the gospel again that shapes people into the image of Jesus. I thank you God that in your wisdom you've decided to use fallible people to uh, teach other fallible people about the the, the reality of God. So I pray God uh, this morning that we would remember these men, that we would um, care for their hearts, care for their burdens, pray for their peace and pray for their safety and protection. We're thankful for them.